This is Cabernet and True Crime, the place where good wine and true crime come together. Hello, friends. We're going in right again. No intro. Still have not decided <laughs> on what I like. Also, um, so if you remember last, not last week, but two weeks ago, because uh, your girl needed a little break or you, um, I was like, this, <laughs> this microphone's bunk. Well, apparently it's so bunk that I can't even find it anymore. I have no idea where it even went. I found, I think what the problem was, was I didn't have like a power cord and I couldn't find that. And then this week I found the power cord and like the attachments, but, um, I can't find the microphone anywhere. I don't know where it went. Couldn't even tell you. It's, I don't even have a guess. So welcome to Technical Difficulties, the podcast about technical difficulties. (laughs) As always, I'm your host, Jana, and I do, I struggle. This is just... (laughs) I'm constantly in a state of struggle, and I am never in a state of thriving. Welcome. Um, So, okay, cool. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so sorry about last week. Uh, Sometimes time just, you know, gets away from you. And then I turned around, and it's like 8 p.m. on a Thursday, and I'm like furiously trying to research for the podcast, and like, those are no fun. And for me, this is supposed to be kind of like a hobby, and in, in, you know, something I do in my free time. And so if this becomes something that stresses me out, I don't want to do it anymore. You know, it, it's not, if it's not fun, then why am I doing it? So, you know, last week was just like, a, I need to take a little break. Don't need to stress out about it. I can always take a week off and come right back because you know what? It's my, it's my podcast and that's, that's where we live. This is what we do. So there was no episode this week. And I might just be putting in like a bye week every now and again, like a scheduled bye week, just, you know for ease of things like I can maybe post other stuff for your viewing pleasure or listening pleasure at that time um or you know but we'll figure that out that's that's me that's marketing that's my job um and like if a sports team can have a bye week I certainly can too I get paid nothing for this so (laughs) and it's like it's my podcast I'm my own boss uh if you look at it like that. Um, of course, in a perfect world, I would love to have an episode every week and be real over the top with like my YouTube and the crime stories and all that. But you know, I'm just one little old person, one little old lady, and I like to be able to sleep occasionally. Also, good news. If you remember last week, the last, not last week, the last time we were here, I was talking about Twisted and Uncorked, the podcast, and how they were going to send me over their promotion so I could um, shout out their podcast. And I actually have it for you now. So I was trying to figure out how to import um, that into this, but unfortunately, I do have to leave in like 30 minutes. So (laughs) that won't be happening. However, I will play it for you. It's just, um, I'm doing my best. Okay, so hang on. Here's the promo for Twisted and Uncorked, the podcast. Hello, Twisted Humans. Do you find yourself wanting to know more about the latest murder, conspiracy, cult, or haunting? Then this is the podcast for you. In 1952, there was a record high of UFOs reported. 1,500 sightings. There has been evidence of human sacrifice, devil worship, and it is haunted by more spirits than can be counted. A family of two adults and two kids reportedly saw a giant flying thing with glowing red eyes. And meanwhile, the family's nanny that helped Veronica to care for her and Lucian's children was found bludgeoned to death in the basement of their family home. I'm Alicia. And I'm Sierra. And this is Twisted Twisted and Uncorked. 
so there you go. Check them out. They're very cool. They're very nice. And uh, you should listen to their podcast. Aside from that, I don't think there's any other housekeeping. Oh, except for um, if you don't follow me on Instagram, you should do so. I'm assuming you're here because of the Instagram. But if you ended up here from something else, follow my Instagram. I post something every single day. Every single day. (laughs) And I go through a lot of work to make sure I post something every single day. So um, appreciate it. Check it out. Um, uh, Other housekeeping... I don't think there's any except for my literal real life home. <laughs> We're having people over this weekend for my husband's birthday. And so I really need to clean my house. In um, like, okay, so one little last sidebar. So Penny was just the sweetest tiny little lady. And there's a reason why Frenchies are considered to be the perfect apartment dogs. They don't make a lot of noise. I mean, they're like, quietly noisy all the time but they're not like barking dogs and she wasn't messy at all she was like a, a literal house cat who didn't shed and didn't need to use a litter box and she only cared about like one or two toys and she was so small that it really didn't matter Nero on the other hand is a literal tornado of chaos he I can clean the house and literally I turn around and it's destroyed again and I've just stopped kind of cleaning regularly at this point because there's I mean until he's a little bit bigger and maybe calm down what's the point but now my friends are coming over and so I need to clean my house um but enough about that those are my woes they're really not kind of big woes I just like to whine sometimes and you guys can't respond to me so <laughs> I can just whine into the abyss and it doesn't matter because you can't you can't say anything back to me so hey any who all right it's episode 65 and we're all ready to rock and roll I can feel it you know ready to just get it get it going um yeah oh <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day and it's funny because I put this in my script and I'm not exactly sure why but it is still funny so I'm gonna tell you so we're not ready to rock and roll that much so my husband bought these like smelling salts or whatever and they're called like crazy guy extreme smelling salts and like I was really tired when I was writing the script and so I'm assuming that's why I put it in there but I'm too scared to smell those because there was one review that was like have you ever wondered what it feels like to be donkey kicked by Satan? <laughs> like, no, the answer is no. The answer is literally has that never, ever crossed my mind. Um, yeah, I need something like slightly more than caffeine, but less than like hard drugs. And I don't know if smelling salts are it for me, but you know, it's fine. But right, so back to 65, episode 65, we're here. We're going to talk about somebody that you might have heard of before, but I hadn't. And so, therefore, here we are. Um, apparently, Georgia from My um, my Favorite Murder covered this, and apparently a different other podcast also covered this as well. But I haven't heard any of those, and this came up, and I was interested, and so I'm researching it, and here we are. So you get to hear my take on this little story. Um Yeah, and I stopped listening to My Favorite Murder a little while ago, and so this either happened after I stopped listening or... Uh, there's a lot of chaos going on downstairs. Um, or I forgot the episode entirely. I don't think that's the case, though. I also, I think it was a live episode, and I really didn't enjoy listening to their live episodes. Nothing against them. It just wasn't something I enjoyed. I usually skipped those. Uh, yes. So, Herbert Richard Bowmeister, or Herb, as he's called in a lot of articles, that's a name. I really enjoy that name. It's a really fun name. It's fun to say. So, he's our topic for today. His nickname on Murderpedia is Herbert the Pervert. And I really like that. I really like that's what we went with because, um, like I said on the Stinky Bob episode, let's just collectively decide to stop giving serial killers like brutal names. Like Herbert the Pervert. Perfect. Like, let's stick with that. Stinky Bob. Yes. You know, let's make fun of him. 
I don't think that's going to stop any of these people from doing what they're doing at the end of the day, but I think giving them less interesting names is certainly a place we can all start. Um, so yeah, I'm here for that. Uh, so Herb, he was born on April 7th, 1947 in Indianapolis, Indiana. You should have an idea of where Indianapolis is because it's a major city and I'm not going to describe it to you because it's on a map. Well, I mean, they're all on maps. You know what I mean. So he's the first child born to Dr. Herbert Bomeister, and Herb is not a junior. Uh, he His middle name was Eugene, also a great name. Um, yeah. <laughs> and his wife, her name was Elizabeth. Uh, Dr. Bomeister was an anesthesiologist, which is a neat job. I wanted to be one of those for a minute. But med school is really hard. And um, as we've talked about before, I've seen an autopsy, and bodies kind of freak me out a little bit in real life. Uh, Herb was one of four children. Uh, and like I said, he was the oldest. He had a younger sister, Barbara, and two younger brothers, Brad and Richard. Allegedly, as a, like a child child, he was regular, very normal. But as time went on, he became an adolescent. Uh, he began getting weird, which as you know, no bueno. When they start getting weird, bad things start to happen. He started showing signs of antisocial behavior, which is generally like um, stealing, hitting, lying, and manipulating, and just being really generally disruptive and a nuisance. And I looked up the general causes of antisocial behavior just because I was curious. And typically, the family is one of the biggest sources of this phenomena, and antisocial behavior can stem from one or both parents showing antisocial behavior, parental drug or alcohol abuse, an unstable home life, absence of good parenting, physical abuse, or economic distress. And some people are just neurobiologically prone to be antisocial based on their brain development. Some humans show um, antisocial behavior. Those have um, increased activity in their amygdala, the part of the brain that is responsible for decision-making. So it could either be um, neurological or your home life. Uh, there's more recent studies about television or like content consumption, but in this case, considering it's the 1950s, I don't think that had anything to do with it. Um, and we won't assume anything about his home life because I really haven't read anything about it and I really don't know. So the direct sources of his behavior are unknown, but ultimately irrelevant to this overall story. Um, that's just, that was a little thing that I did, that I researched. <laughs> so you get to have it now too. Um, so the kids that knew Herb in his early teens mentioned that he was into urophilia, meaning he got sexual pleasure from watching people pee or from like urine itself. Um, kind of like the golden shower thing. He apparently was also fixated and curious about what human urine would taste like. And as always, we don't kink shame here as long as everyone's consenting. So I'll keep any comments that I might have to myself because, you know, that's whatever. Also, teenagers are weird. He enjoyed playing with dead animals and would pee on teachers' desks. And that's where we delve into the, um, the not okay for sure part about this because I would reckon that those teachers did not consent to having their desks peed on. And that's just a hard guess. Uh, there's also an incident reported that he had at one point found a dead crow in the road, which he put in his pocket and put on a teacher's desk when they weren't paying attention. How big was that crow is what I want to know. <laughs> the fitness pocket. Uh, yeah. Once again, I'm here to ask. I'm here to ask the difficult questions. So obviously Herb's parents caught wind of this because, you know, he's peeing on his teacher's desks. 
Dr. Herbert sends his son off to be evaluated by a psychiatrist because they're obviously not normal or reasonable behaviors. And at this time, he's diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and antisocial personality disorder, which we've briefly covered antisocial personality disorder just now in this podcast. But for those who aren't aware, paranoid schizophrenia is a continuous or relapsing episode in psychosis. Psychosis meaning that for the person experiencing this, they have a very difficult time determining what is real and what is imaginary. Someone experiencing schizophrenia, uh, they experience hallucinations like hearing voices, delusions, and disorganized thinking. I read in this little bit of research that other symptoms of schizophrenia include social withdrawal and general numbness, um, so feeling you can't feel any emotions. There are some, you know, pretty serious yet pretty treatable medical diagnoses. Like, I mean, you can still live a very regular life with these di- these diseases. I'm using air quotes, but... Um, but they have to be treated in some extent. You can't just let them fester. Like, these are something, like, with, with medical treatment, you can do fine. And, like, psychological treatment, you can live a completely normal life. Um, unfortunately, though, after receiving these results, no treatment was sought out, and Herb continues on unmedicated and unevaluated, for the for that matter, too. So he attended North Central High School, which, after looking it up, was... Um, he was honestly probably one of the first classes to graduate from there because it was built in 1956. Um, due to the area's rapidly growing population. And out of curiosity, because I love looking this type of thing up, there's a bunch of notable people who went to that high school. Um, one that surprised me was Jared Fogel. He graduated from there. Uh, Subway Jared, who is now a convicted felon for being a pedophile. <laughs> Jared graduated in 1995, um, but Herbert Bomeister graduated in 1965. And at that time, North Central was big for sports, which I suppose it still is. But based off their Wikipedia page, it looks like their main focus right now is the arts, like band. Uh, Herb said that because he didn't see himself as being very athletic, he wasn't part of the in crowd, and that he just didn't blend in. He spent a lot of time by himself, he didn't have any friends, and he didn't date. The same year he graduated high school, 1965, Herb was accepted into Indiana University. He dropped out after one semester. During this time, at least at this uh, this university, because he, he goes back, um, he meets a woman named Juliana Sater, and they bond because they both share um, conservative values, and they begin to date. After dropping out of school, he works for the Indianapolis Star newspaper as a copy boy. I know that during this time, he returned to Indiana University as a student, but he also attended a semester at Butler University, and to my knowledge, he never graduated from an accredited university or ever got a higher education, like completed one. In November of 1971, he marries Juliana, who did finish schooling and earn her degree. She was a high school journalism instructor, but she leaves her job after the wedding with the focus of starting a family. At this time, Herb works at the BMV and is making enough money for her to do so, so she can quit her job. There's something I read, but was unable to find a great deal of information about, but I saw that only six months after being married, Herb spends two months in a psychiatric hospital. He had a few odd jobs, kind of bouncing around, and was known for having a great work ethic, but in general was weird. Um, Remember a few episodes ago, wow, episodes ago when I mentioned that like people will lie and say, oh, that person was completely normal. We would never suspect anything. Herb wasn't totally one of those people. He was odd. And he was only committed for six months after they got married in 1971. He stayed in the psychiatric hospital for two months and Juliana, his wife, said that he was hurting and needed help. Other than that, though, it seems like their marriage is mostly normal. He, of course, is still up to weird shit. From the time period of 1974 to 1985, he works at the BMV. He gets promoted to the title of program director. 
He had sent Christmas cards with him and another man dressed in drag, and he urinated on a letter addressed to the governor and subsequently lost his job for it. During those years, too, he and Juliana have three children. Marie is born in 1979, Eric is born in 1981, and Emily is born in 1984. Despite the fact that the couple produced three children, Juliana later states that in the 25 years they would be married, they only had sex six times, and that she had never seen her husband nude. So he was a never nude, I would assume, which is what it is. So his home life was like odd, but mostly regular. And ironically, Bowmeister was a great businessman. He founded two successful save-a-lots in the Indianapolis area in the late 1980s. And so he had a good business mind despite like everything. As, as always, because always, he is not on this podcast just because he's weird. These Save-A-Lots aren't like, if you live in the Midwest at all, they're not like the Save-A-Lots out here because Save-A-Lot is a chain of grocery store in the Midwest, but these Save-A-Lots, it was spelled differently, was more of like a thrift store. So, I'm not saying that with like 98% confidence. Don't quote me on that, but you can if you want to. (laughs) Um, Anywho, in the late 1980s, uh, the early early ones, and you know, what? Who wrote this? Me. What did I write? Uh, I don't, wow, I don't even know that, I was kind of sleepy when I wrote the script, so you'll have to deal with this. Um, I jump around a bunch, and apparently this is me apologizing for jumping around a bunch in my script. Very confusing, but it's fine. Okay, so in 1985, he's almost 40 years old, he's 38, and on September 3rd, which is my wedding anniversary, Herb was drinking and driving and committed a hit and run, and on March 27th, the following year, there was a warrant filed for his arrest, which he's charged with uh, auto theft and conspiracy to commit theft. He was acquitted of those charges after one day in trial. And I don't know what the whole thing was about. And I literally scolded myself that says, do more research, maybe. I didn't. And so that's all you get to know. Uh, Save-A-Lot was Herb and his wife Julie's joint vision, and they sold used clothing with a chunk of other of their profits going to charity, which benefited, benefited neglected children. The same year that all of this happens, in 1986, Herb's dad, Dr. Herbert, dies. In 1988, he borrows $4,000 from his mother and opens up the Save-A-Lot store that I mentioned. This is me. I apologized for jumping around a bunch, and here I am apologizing yet again. So he opens the Save-A-Lot store, and by 1990, his first store made so much money that he opened up a second store. Their joint vision, though, was a difficult one, owning two businesses and raising three children. That's no easy feat. Herb actually moved out of their home in 1991, filing for divorce, but shortly afterwards, the couple was able to reconcile their marriage and bought a million-dollar property called the Fox Hollow Farm. Their property had four bedrooms and an indoor pool. Julie, Herb's wife, said that they did it to give their children a utopia to live in. The purchase of the new home does nothing to thwart their marital or money problems, though. By 1994, sales of the Save-A-Lot are plummeting. Herb has lost the respect of his employees because he's constantly showing up to work with alcohol on his breath and demeaning them, treating them poorly. That year, he's arrested for drinking and driving in Rochester, Indiana. He was sentenced to three days in jail and receives one-year probation. Then arrives the day where everything starts to slide, where something happens that throws this whole story into a tailspin. In 1994, Eric, Herb and Julie's 13-year-old son, discovers a a human skull. He brings it to his mom. He said that he found it in the woods at Fox Hollow, and Julie asks where he had found it, and he leads her to a burial site. Julie, of course, brings it up to her husband. He says that, you know, his father was an anesthesiologist. The bones are from a medical skeleton that was once owned by his father, and he does not describe how the bones could have ended up buried in their yard in the first place. 
Days later, when Julie goes to check on them, the bones are gone. And she assumed they'd either been carried off by an animal and just went off about her business. And I think it's kind of crazy that she bought the story, but at the same time, she had a lot going on. And realistically, she had no reason not to believe him. And yeah, like, I feel it. You're stressed out. Things just seem to kind of like fall out of your brain sometimes. It's common. <laughs> and um, that is what it is until November 1995 when police approached Julie about her husband in the murder of Roger Goodlett, who had gone missing on July 22nd, 1994. Two weeks before he had gone missing, uh, he was seen in several gay bars with someone, Herb Bowmeister. The police had been searching for a culprit for a long time. In the late 80s and early 90s, a couple of Indiana police departments had been investigating the disappearances of homosexual men that were all of similar age, height, and weight, and had all disappeared in the Indianapolis area. In 1992, a man named Tony Harris had reached out to them, saying that there was a man named Brian Smart, a patron at several gay establishments who he suspected killing his friend, Roger Goodlett. Tony said that Brian Smart was an odd guy who took a huge interest in Roger Goodlett's missing persons case, suspiciously interested, and that apparently Tony and Brian Smart had an erotic coupling inside Brian's mansion after meeting each other at the 501 Club. According to Tony, during this encounter, Brian Smart almost let him die by strangling him with a pool hose during an erotic asphyxiation session at the home. Tony saw Brian Smart again in August of 1995 and followed his car, getting the license plate and notifying police. Sorry about that break there. I'm hoping this works. So I had to go with my husband to go pick up a an outdoor stove thing. So it's it's several hours later after I started recording that. But uh, I'm here now. <laughs> so just trying to uh, remember where I was. And I'm not sure if I covered this, but so Tony Harris saw Brian Smart again in August of 1995 and followed his car, getting the license plate and notifying police. I'm 96% sure that's where I was. And hopefully, hopefully I'm right. I guess we'll find out when I try to mesh these two pieces of the podcast in together, which I've never done before. So we'll see how well this goes. And if, if I don't get this done, then I guess I'm re-recording this whole thing tomorrow. It's <laughs> not what I plan to do. Um, okay, so with that information, the police were able to figure out that Brian Smart didn't exist, and instead, their main suspect in the specific disappearance should be her Baumeister. Uh, um, which brings us to our current moment in November of 1995 when police confront Julie as well as Herb about this conundrum that they found themselves in. The police asked to search the home, and uh, the couple declines, which, I mean, you have a legal right to do. Um, you know, the whole come back with a warrant saying, as they say. Um, but in this situation, I highly suspect that, you know, uh, they will. Uh, they're most likely going to come back and search your house. And so Herb, he lawyers up pretty much immediately. Um, and then he subsequently tells his lawyers that he plans to kill himself. So definitely, definitely what somebody wants to hear when they're your lawyer, which also, um, Another sidebar, I was just thinking about it based off that, right? If you've never watched Accused before, it's on A&E, Accused, Guilty, or Innocent or Guilty, Guilty or Innocent, not entirely sure. Incredible. It's such a it's such a wild ride of a show, and if you ever want to see, like, the defenses side of things, because usually when we watch shows like that, it's always, like, on the prosecution side. So if you ever want to see what it was like to be a defense attorney and, like, the crap they have to go through, 10 out of 10, recommend that show. But so, yeah, uh, Herb's like, yep, I'm going to kill myself. And his lawyers are like, well, don't do that because that's not like the right path out of this. 
And um, by January, Julie files for divorce against Herb. Um, their relationship is strained past the point of saving. I mean, they were already, like, you know, in and out of divorce and in and out of moving out, and they were already kind of, um, but the business and the kids, everything, they were already on thin ice. And, like, I think this, on top of, like, everything else, is really just the final straw, and understandably so. So their Save-A-Lot stores shut down. Um, Herb is described as many as deeply troubled. And by June, Herb is acting so erratically and frenzied that Julie is genuinely scared of him. So she calls the police to tell them about the bones she and her son had found in the backyard and give them permission to search the home. She had finally had enough. So back to that. On June 24th, while Herb was away, I think he was on vacation, not entirely sure, police conducted their search of the property, which in total took two weeks. So the remains of 11 men were found, eight of whom were identified. So John... Johnny Bayer, 20, went missing on May 28, 1993, in Indianapolis. Jeffrey Allen Jones, 31, went missing on July 6, 1993, in Indianapolis. Richard Douglas Hamilton, Jr., 20, went missing on July 31, 1993, in Indianapolis. Manuel Resendez, 31, was a homosexual Hispanic male and his children's counselor uh, and a chil- children's counselor from Lafayette, India, who was last seen in downtown Indianapolis on August 6, 1993. Alan Lee Livingston, who was 27, also went missing on August 6, 1993, in Indianapolis. His remains were recovered in the initial search of the farm in 1996, but they weren't identified until um, just this year, actually, October 2023. Stephen Sperlin Hale, 23, went missing on April 1st, 1994, in Indianapolis. Alan Wayne Brossard, 28, went missing on June 6, 1994, in Indianapolis. Roger Allen Goodlett, 33, we talked about him. He went missing on July 22nd, 1994, and he had just left his mother's house to go um, clubbing, and two weeks before his disappearance, he was seen with Baumeister in several establishments. And Michael Frederick Kiern was 45. He was last seen on March 31st, 1995 at a gay bar in downtown Indianapolis. And a jacket belonging to Kern was found in Baumeister's residence. So if you were curious, um, how did he get away with having all these men and people? Because obviously the remains were found at his house. So how did he do this? And um, in one of the articles I read, Julie, Julie every, for I think like a week, every month went on vacation to their lake house they she took the kids up to the lake house and so that's she was gone and i think this when all this occurred was when she was away um there was another search done last year in 2022 which found a bone and possibly 20 other locations where remains could be found so i'm pretty sure they did one of those like ground sonar things where they could find like graves um and since the initial search in 1996 none of the other remaining victims have been identified yet and the Hamilton County Coroner's Office has asked the public request, like, so if you know anybody who happened to disappear um, from the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s uh, to do a DNA test so that they can help try to identify the victim's remains through probably familial DNA. Um, so one week into the search, Herb becomes aware that he is going to be arrested and will have to pay for his crimes. Uh, it, I think it was on the news, uh, you would assume, or in the newspapers, and it just becomes evident that, like, he can't go home now. So he drives to Canada to evade police. On July 3rd, 1996, Herb finds himself at Pinery Provincial Park in Ontario. He commits suicide by shooting himself in the head with a handgun. 
He left a three-page suicide note, which mentioned that he felt bad for messing up the park. He felt bad about his failed marriage um, and his broken, or his failed, well, his failed marriage and his broken business and failed business, and did not mention anything about the victims, his crimes, or his secret life. Because of his death, he was never taken to trial, and he was never fully punished for his actions, but at least eight of these victims and their names have had their names returned to them, and their cases can be closed. The remaining victims on his property who are yet to be found and identified, that is still to come. Despite this, we aren't done with Herb yet. Uh, he's been presumed to be the main suspect in another th- slew of cases. So the I-70 Strangler, I don't know why I said that like that, the I-70 Strangler, is a moniker given to the unknown American serial murderer responsible for the deaths of at least 11 young males and adults in Indiana and Ohio from June 1980 until October 1991. <clears throat> the remains were frequently found in proximity to Interstate 70, discarded in, the, discarded in the rural terrain. The assailant encountered his targets in a well-attended in well-attended gay bars and re- related venues with Indianapolis and left the victims in varying states of undress near the highway, often in waterways or roadside ditches. Strangulation was determined to be the cause of death for each victim. Law enforcement officials in April 1999 named Herb Bowmeister as the main suspect, noting that the discoveries of the body ceased in 1991, coinciding with his acquisition of Fox Hollow Farm, which became a dumping site for later victims. On June 16th, so here's a list of all the I-70 killers' victims, Um, and I apologize for having to clear my throat so much. I ate dinner, and I didn't realize it was going to be so detrimental to this. On June 16th, 1980, Michael Petrie, a 15-year-old, was found deceased in Hamilton County, Indiana. Despite his age, he was involved with sex work within the Indianapolis gay scene. He went missing on June 7th and was seen hitching rides shortly after. His death was attributed to strangulation without evidence of substance abuse. Maurice Taylor, a 22-year-old transient, was found on July 21, 1982 in Weasel Creek, Hamilton County. Although his cause of death wasn't confirmed, strangulation was suspected. Financial hardships led Taylor to frequent the local gay bars offering sexual services. Delvoid Baker uh, was just 14, was partially, uh, was discovered partially clothed near a river in Hamilton County on October 3rd, 1982. Witnesses last saw Baker entering a blue van driven by a mustachioed white male. Despite a call home on the night he vanished, it was later revealed he had been soliciting in gay bars for months. Michael Riley, age 22, went missing on May 28, 1983, after a night at a gay nightclub in Indianapolis. He was last seen leaving with an unidentified man, and his body was found on June 5th in Hancock County. He was strangled, presumably with a towel. Eric Allen Rodiger, 17, disappeared on May 7, 1985, and was found shirtless days later near a stream in Ohio. Despite plans for a job, interviews, and no known ties to the gay community, later evidence suggested connection to those um, involved in drugs, and he was strangled with a rope. Michael Allen Glenn, 29, was found in his underwear in an Ohio ditch on August 15, 1986. Living separately from his family and working as a handyman, the date of his disappearance was unclear. Strangulation marks indicated his cause of death. James Robbins Jr., 21, disappeared on October 15, 1987, and his body was found two days later in Shelby County, Indiana, with signs of strangulation. Witnesses reported seeing different vehicles near the crime scene. Stephen Elliott, 26, was found on August 12, 1989, in Ohio. He was strangled and found in his underwear. He had left home after coming out as gay and struggled with alcohol dependency. 
Clay Boatman, 32, vanished on August 14, 1990 after visiting a local gay bar. Children later found his body with strangulation marks in an Ohio ditch. His family denied he was gay. Thomas Clevenger Jr., 18, disappeared on September 6, 1990 and was later found semi-clothed at an abandoned railroad track in Ohio. Oh, hello, Nero. Facing financial struggle, struggles, he had turned to sex work, which his family disputed. Finally, the body of Otto Gary Becker, 42, was discovered on August 6, 1991 in Indiana. Witnesses reported seeing Becker in a vehicle on Interstate 90, but the driver was never identified. In total, it's not even remotely known how many people could have attri- could be attributed to her Baumeister. The saddest part, and this, this actually was really upsetting, because, I mean, you always think about, you know, the actual, the victims of this, the victims of the crime, the victims of the family, and, you know, everything that they have to go through, and and those who don't know what happened to their family and those who don't know, you know, they don't have the closure of, you know, finally knowing what happened to their family. And I think oftentimes we forget about the family of the person who did all this. You know, a lot of the times they don't have any idea what's going on. And a lot of the times I feel like they could have no clue that this is what was going on right, you know, right underneath their noses. And so, um, and part of one of the articles I read, it was like, I think it was a Time article or like a Life article. I'm not really sure. <laughs> Sorry. But um, it, it talks, it's from Julie and she had done an interview and um, she said something that was like really, really profound. And I kind of wanted to read it to you guys too, just because I thought it was just, you know, kind of really drills the point home but the saddest part is for the children and julie who lost the life they thought they had and they lost the memories of the father they thought they knew and so this is the article quote that i read the months since herb's death have been particularly wrenching for marn eric and emily who julie says idolized their father now portrayed by police and local media as a monster still she insists nothing can take away the love these kids have for their dad Late last summer, she and the children moved from Fox Hollow Farm back to the house in Indianapolis where she had begun her life with Herb only 25 years ago, or nearly 25 years ago. Our biggest question now is how he could have loved us and done this, she says of Herb's alleged atrocities. Happiness as we knew it is never going to return, and I hope they're all doing okay because they're all victims in this too. Um... Yeah, I mean, I hope the families of the victims have some closure, and I hope those who have not been identified will be, and that their families are able to get closure. And I, I really hope that um, the Bowmeister family finds some type of peace in all of this, too. Um, it's obviously not a good situation, and there's trouble, you know? And I mean, it comes down to just decisions in general. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. Like, you know, especially with this case, like, he had a a psychological past, you know, like, he had, he had troubles, and you almost wonder, like, well, you know, if, if he had gotten, it's always the question of, like, if he had gotten the help that he needed when he was younger, like, would this have even happened, or if because, like, no, no treatment was sought out, like, and these thoughts and not problems because mental health is mental health you know you take care of it and it takes care of you but when you when you neglect those things when you know you have you know not issues that's not the right word but when you have that type of situation and you choose to ignore it instead of trying to help it you know does that make this type of situation more prevalent I I don't know I'm sure there's studies on it but yeah that's my thoughts. <laughs> that's, that's my thoughts and that's my podcast. So 
Um, hopefully this loads fine. I really don't want to have to record this. And if it doesn't, then I guess we'll see you again tomorrow. Um, with that being said, uh, I hope you'll have a good night since it's, it's nighttime now. <laughs> and uh, I'll see you next week.